You want to know how messed up the system is? Imagine if Trayvon killed George Zimmerman. You think Trayvon will be found innocent? Many do a lifetime of imprisonment. See, stand your ground only works if you're a citizen. And that right isn't his. Only whites benefit. We are not legitimate. That fact's definitive. Don't believe? Ask Marissa Alexander if it is. To protect herself in her own home with her kids fired a warning shot and got a 20-year sentencing. And that's ridiculous. But all blacks are witnesses to the hatred of this nation that's run by hypocrites. You think the NRA will back Trayvon with Fox News to white folks if he gets off stay calm? We know the truth, so I won't go no further, because Trayvon was found guilty of his own murder. Rest in peace, Trayvon Martin. Prayers go out to Trayvon Martin's family. One hood. three decades, the prison population in Pennsylvania has risen by 600%, while violent crime has stayed put or gone down. Politicians, prosecutors, and police have targeted low-income communities of color, stopping, harassing, and arresting our neighbors, and leaving whole generations with criminal records. Enough is enough. Decarcerate PA is a coalition of individuals and organizations working to put an end to the damaging system we call mass incarceration. And our three-point platform outlines how we aim to get there. First, we say, no new prison. That means canceling the $450 million construction of Greaterford and passing a moratorium against future prison projects. New prisons waste our resources and help cause the future they claim to prepare for. The 19 new prisons built in the last 33 years haven't made us safer. They've just allowed us to continue in the wrong direction. Second, we call for decarceration itself. That means reversing the policies of mass incarceration and reducing the prison population. We can't stop building prisons and keep the failed laws and policies that filled them to begin with. Mandatory minimums must go. Everyone should be eligible for parole. People with substance abuse problems should get treatment and not jail time. Mass incarceration is a product of bad laws, and we need to change them. Finally, we understand that the real problems in our communities can't be ignored. That's why the third point of our platform calls for community reinvestment. We want the money being wasted on prisons to be reinvested in schools, healthcare, social services, job training classes, and addiction treatment programs. These are the things that actually make our community safer, and it's time we made them our priority. Our platform is a plan, but our strength is in the thousands of people all across the state and country who are standing up against a broken, oppressive system. Join us every Saturday from noon to one to hear how they're working to create a world without prisons. Welcome. Uh, you're listening to WPV. This is 88.1 FM, Decarcerate PA Radio. And today we have a lot of people here in the studio. I'm just going to say all the names of everybody here, and then uh, we will do introductions. We have Sarah, we have Ashley, Khadija, Owen, Dave. My name is Anna, and I'm going to pass this to Ashley. Um, or if any, I, maybe everybody wants to do introductions. Um, my name is Sarah Giskin. 
I'm from an organization called PERP that stands for People Utilizing Real Power. Um, and I'm here today to talk about a demonstration we're doing this Wednesday. Hi, my name is Khadija White. Uh, I am just a local community member, um, and I'm also organizing a vigil for Trayvon Martin and um, all youth who've experienced racial violence this week um, across the, city, the street from City Hall at 4.30 to 7, so 7.30. Okay, so um, the reason that we had that we have the two of you here today is to talk about um, these demonstrations that you're you're holding, and they're both about uh, Trayvon Martin. And um, I don't know if like, one or both of you want to talk a little bit about uh, the Trayvon Martin case and um, how that affected you, and like why you're having these events. The reason that the demos are this Wednesday is that this Wednesday, the 26th, will be the second anniversary of Trayvon's death. Um, and his birthday was also this month, a few weeks ago. I believe he would have been 19. And I think it's really interesting, the Trayvon case, because this isn't anything new. Um, people of color, especially black boys, have been getting murdered by white men for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but it was really... Um, powerful to see the Trayvon case take off in the way it did and catch on and see so many um, young people, older people, uh, poor people, middle class people, like everyone, lots and lots of people were impacted by this and realized how messed up it was and how wrong everything is. Um, and even though George Zimmerman literally got away with murder, um, we're having this event to show that we still remember, and we remember all the other victims before and after, and um, the fight continues. Trayvon, everyone knows Trayvon wasn't the first and he wasn't the last, and um, that's really what we're trying to get at um, with our demonstration. Yeah, and I think I want to add that one of the concerns is that um, <laughs> it's not just that black boys and, and black women have been getting killed for centuries in this country, but that it's been legal, right? So people used to go outside and uh, say, we're going to lynch and kill someone, and they would grab their dates and their children, and they would gather around a tree where they were killing, burning, torturing, cutting off the genitals of young black people, um, often men, and, uh, and and they would cut people's, I mean, they would literally take souvenirs and trophies. And so we're living in an age where um, George Zimmerman gets transformed into a celebrity because he killed a black youth and reified this notion that you can kill black people and be free, right? It's just summoning up an age in which black white people were so supreme by law that you could do it without any any prospect of being punished at all. Maybe, you you know, during slavery, you'd have to compensate um, somebody's owner if you killed them. But that that's where we were. So, so you know, it, it's, it's kind of this feeling, I think, within the black community of resisting this return to an age, or that particular age. I, I want to back it up just a little bit and talk a little bit more about, um, about, Trayvon, about the Trayvon Martin case, in case people uh, aren't aware of it. Um, so like Sarah said, two years ago, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed by a man named George Zimmerman. And um, the case got a lot of attention because he was this young, unarmed uh, black boy 
who was killed while he was like walking home or walking to um, some place where you know he had a right to be, where he was expected, and um, he was killed by this man who found him threatening. Yeah, so what happened was, um, from what I remember, that he was actually watching the NCAA basketball tournament. I think there was a basketball game. And he decided to go to the store for some snacks. Um, and he walked to the store and never came back alive. He was at his father's house. Um, he was walking back, and a man in a car started to follow him. And this was George Zimmerman, who started calling 911 repeatedly um, about a black thug um, or, or people who always get away with it uh, walking through the neighborhood. He decided to come out of his car um, with a gun and he killed him. He killed him. Yeah. I just I just wanted to comment on what, what you were saying before, Khadija, about this, you know, this feeling there's a, a return to, to these days of like, you know, lynchings and stuff like that. Um, Angela Davis, I mean, I think this ties also in well with um, what Decarcerate PA is doing is um, Angela Davis wrote this book um, a few years back called Our Prisons Obsolete and um, I think it's an excellent it's like an excellent kind of like primer to read on on you know like the hi- historical connections between slavery but also capitalism and and what we have now which is um, you know like also a like a very racist system that's been transformed and also like moved out of sight a lot so that we don't have like the, the, you know, public lynchings and stuff like that. But we, we do have like a whole, a really vast legal system that borrows really directly from um, days of slavery. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a direct, you can see, you can right? (laughs) Well, yeah, you know, document that's a founding document that we talk about all the time. Of course. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I, I think Angela Davis ties it together really well, where she where she traces um, both kind of legal frameworks that borrow for you know, like from slavery to the Black Codes to you know, like following up to what we have now that's turned into like this huge incarceration, incar- mass incarceration system that that's that has more people, more more black men in prison than than were enslaved during days of slavery. And I think I think, you know, we, we should when we see these things like like uh people like George Zimmerman getting off or the more recent cases as well. And then we also see the racial disparity between, you know, for instance, uh George Zimmerman and Marissa Alexander, for instance, like um it's just clear as day, you know, and and we should just keep that in mind that that there is a continuity. It's I don't think it's necessarily coming back. Yeah, I think um, what that gets to is the difference between um, well, in the past, right? It was legal to kill any white person could kill any black person, and that was acceptable. Except as Khadija was talking about, maybe you would have to pay. Um, the person that was holding them enslaved for, you know, a loss of property. Um, And now it's not technically legal, but in the way the law gets played out, it ends up as if it was still legal. Because you, lots of these white men are killing um, black children and black adults and just are not getting the consequences for it that are legally um, what they should be getting. Um, So I think implementation of the law is a huge factor um, 
because some people think that all we have to do is work to change the laws, and once the laws are fi- are fair, quote unquote, then we're done and society is fixed. And that's obviously not the case. As um, these cases like Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, or um, right here in Philadelphia, um, Darren Manning, things like that really prove. Yeah, one of the things about implementation is um, that you can't. It's about changing people's minds. So George Zimmerman got off on a self-defense claim. Um, that was his. That was his case theory: is that he was threatened by, you know, his life was threatened by Trayvon Martin. Similarly, you know, his neighborhood was threatened by Trayvon Martin being there. And so, as long as black men are being um, seen as threatening in these contexts, this the legal framework. If you accept that black men are always a threat, then sure, self-defense applies. I mean, that's a, 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 a case of you know getting into into the mindset behind um, the implementation of these laws and recognizing that that kind of um, that sort of structured racism is there, even though we say that we're race blind. Yeah, I mean, it gets at this cognitive element, right? You have to say that I believe this person was in a legitimate fear of their life. Um, and by doing that, that means you have to say, if I saw that kind of person in front of me, would I also be afraid? Uh, and that, that's, I think, what gets at the, one of the most painful parts of um, what's been happening. Because what it presupposes is that black people are always first guilty, um, even when they're victims. And, and that you have to... And so, I mean, to the extent that literally George Zimmerman doesn't get any sort of drug test um, at the scene of the crime, but Trayvon Martin's body is drug tested when he's killed. So, you know, it, it starts to hit you. You have a child in, in you know, Cal- in uh, Texas who gets shot in the face because some white man decides he wants to, an eight-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. You have um, a body that just got turned up again in Jasper, Texas. And remember Jasper from mm-hmm. the lynching in, in the 90s, and now a, a black man who's married to a white woman, his body is turned up, his thro- throat is slit, and, um, and they declare a natural death, right? So now the federal authorities are prosecuting this. So what what we're really being reminded of um, is, again, it's not what I was saying, this party lynching, but this devaluing of black life and this presupposition that black life is always criminal, um, always has to prove itself to be legitimate in a way that white life never has to do. And there's a lack of value. So you shoot my eight-year-old in the face, maybe you get five years, maybe you get 10 years. Um, and so there's that lack of value that you wouldn't have with other children. Uh, so, so yeah. Um, another thing that I was just thought of as Khadijah was talking that I want to bring into it is that um, there are a lot of factors. Like, we definitely see in society today the devaluing of um, black people, but there's a lot of other factors. Like, for instance, I think the statistic is trans women of color, so that's people of color who are transgender women, have a one in eight chance of being murdered. Um, and that's just a really staggering statistic. Um, and I think this is sort of the area where um, intersectionality is really important um, because we see really, really huge rates of um, sexual assault, um, police brutality, vigilante violence, um, and just murder in certain populations. And um, 
And so I think the devaluing of human life is, there's definitely the factor of white supremacy in our society, but there's also a lot of other factors like um, heterosexism and um, social class and things like that, that we can also see. I, 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 yeah. I was kind of like thinking and uh, when you're talking about this, you know, um, I think that um, something that like kind of like comes to my mind always when we are talking about racism is also how racism um, plays, you know, it has all these uh, variables uh, depending on where you are and the context of the communities where you live and in the country where you live. Um, I'm from Mexico, so... The, the the racism it's it's different right it plays differently between you know a person that uh, it's uh, considered here uh, a person of color there can be a white person I'm a white person there here I'm a person of color um, and the racism racism goes more towards indigenous people so it's like all these like levels of right like who has rights who has less rights you know depending on and color and class sometimes but it's totally tight. And when I was having these conversations with some friends here, this like totally confusing, you know, where you are being put always, you know, and how do you, your own identity change and, and how all this gets affected. And um, he was telling me, well, something, you know, that is like really clear, you know, here in this country, at least in the States, um, racism gets um, uh, enforced by the institutions. And that's like a big, big thing, you know, the society can be, um, for me, that was like something really um, interesting to to understand. You know, the society can accept, learn, and unlearn also. Uh, you know, um, different. You know, um, how do you relate to your neighbor? You know, but these all these uh, you know uh, treatments uh, um, they are based on race. Also, there is something that we learn and we cannot learn. Um, but then also, if this is infor um, uh, being forced by, by institutions like laws, um, then there is a different level. Uh, there is nothing that you can do. You know, even if you're trying to change things, you still are, are going to be treated in court, you know, based on this uh, all, you know, institutionalized racism. There was something, you know, that... You know, even if as a society we are trying to learn and learn these things, you know, like there needs to be some politics that need to be changed there. Otherwise, you know, people's going to be continue being punished um, in an unjust way. And that was just something that, you know, it, it was definitely like something that for me, you know, I never thought like that before. You know, there is not something that society does, but there is something that the governments uh, and laws and who brought those laws you know, um, enforce um, over people. Yeah, I mean, and it comes down to white supremacy, right? I mean, in a post-colonial world where uh, most of the world has been kind of um, taken over or colonized by people from Europe, you're going to see white supremacy in all sorts of different spaces, and it manifests itself differently. But I think the white supremacist link, you know, where you're going from country to country, and you say, huh, turns out the people that everybody that has the, have the most money and have the most power and the most influence 
all kind of look alike, right? Like that there is this still this kind of continuity with white supremacy that helps us understand, look, this is actually a code um, that's been put in place. I guess the simplest metaphor is like if you had a bully and then the resolution was the bully gets to make all the rules. And it turns out that every time uh, you hit one of those rules, you lost out. Someone could say, well, it's totally fair. It was a rule. It's like, yeah, I guess if you let the bully make all of the rules. And, and the foundation of these laws, the foundation of these societies were built to oppress, you know? And so the question is, how does one then intervene in a society? And the ways that people did it, at least in, you know, throughout, I think, American history, is they broke them. You know, it's illegal for me to read and write. I'm going to read and write anyway. It's illegal for me to get free. I'm going to get free anyway. It's illegal for me to sit in this space or go to this school or whatever it is. I'm going to break laws that are unjust and are immoral. The problem is that we now have a prison industrial complex that absorbs those lawbreakers quite easily. And that's and that's something that's happened over the last century. So before you could kind of break a law, they didn't necessarily have places to put people. And now they have these huge capacity for storing people who don't conform. And I think that's this, one of the scariest things that's happening lately. And I think one of the other um, important factors when talking about mass incarceration, especially of um, black men is um, or black people in general, is the um, effect on the community that they're from. Because um, it isn't just a punishment for for being black or for trying not to fit yourself into the white supremacist structure. It is that, but it is also um, a means by which um, inequality is further created. So it's not just a result, it's also a, um, a cause. Because when you take a large percentage of a certain population out of population that are often um, parents and partners and um, you know, sources of income to their families. You just remove them from their community that creates, you know, further poverty, further emotional anguish um, for children growing up and so forth. And I think that's an important factor because that's where you get into, like, these cycles that are maintained. Society's been maintaining cycles of poverty for people of color for many, many decades. And I think mass incarceration is one of the newer mechanisms that's come into it to um, continue reinforcing that cycle. Yeah, and you maintain a mindset, too. If you have this disproportionate population of black men in prison and you ask somebody, you know, why do you think black men are criminals? They go, well, look, there's a disproportionate population of black men in prisons. It's a tautology. Yeah. It's like a, it's illogic, it's a, it's logic based on like what exists so it doesn't actually make any, it's circular, circular logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to bring up um, a little bit of a, maybe a harder, a harder point because I think that we owe it to deal with some of the, like the difficult aspects of this, um, which is in decarcerate, we talk about and you, I can see in this conversation we sort of shifted a, a little bit to dealing with mass incarceration and how it disproportionately affects people. But then when we talk about justice and these laws being equally applied to white people here, we tend to, to fall into the kind of um, like language that is the tough-on-crime language that was used against, you know, to, to put this system in place against mostly people of color. 
And so I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about how to, you know, we're talking, you talk about intervening and breaking laws. How do we, how do we intervene in a way that doesn't inadvertently um, support the logic that's mostly being used against communities of color? Well, I would say first that one of the issues with prisons, of course, is that it dehumanizes people, right? And so it takes children and locks them. I mean, you can't, New York just recently said that you can't lock um, pregnant women up in isolation. You can't lock minors up in isolation. I mean, we're putting children into solitary confinement. I, as a, if I had a kid and I locked my kid up in a closet, someone would say that's a horrible thing to do. You can't actually be a nun monster and do that to a child, and yet we let the state do it. And so what? one of the things I want to point out is one of the issues is that we don't want white people, right, then through these laws to enter into these dehumanizing systems, that part of the resistance to prisons is that is manifest in the ways in which certain people are told, you're just too wealthy and privileged to go to prison. You're just too good of a person for us to subject you to a dehumanizing experience. Mm -hmm. And so what that says is brown people, you're not really people anyway. We're not too concerned about you losing humanity because we already think you don't have it. So I think one of the things about saying people should be held like held accountable under the law is I think at least for black people is the notion that once white people have to be subjected to the same conditions they're subjecting other people and I'm not saying there's clearly white people in prison right so there's not this but once you start kind of seeing the same treatment under the law you start seeing the same kind of barbarity that targets black people every single day through stop and frisk and and the kind of terrorism that um, children undergo just going from school every day even in Philly you see the kind of armed escorts on the trains once white people have to start experiencing that, that that will change, right? Because their humanity is never in question. Our humanity is. And so I think one of the ideas there is that the very nature of criminalization, of incarceration, has to change if the law is held accountable in the same ways. And I think that's one of the things, is that you actually can take it and, and create a space that could be potentially either transformative or rehabilitative in a way that it isn't right now. It's just storing and containing and caging um, people for indefinite periods of time. I think this is a really hard question because... Um, I'm also in a feminist collective, and we deal with this issue a lot. We recognize that the government and the laws are all, you know, racist and anti-woman and anti-queer people and classist and things like that, and we don't want to validate them um, and, you know, count them as legitimate because we recognize that they're so problematic, but then when there's instances of rape or other types of sexual assault, we feel like, well, that person needs to rot in jail, and it's like, so... Our desire for justice sometimes make us, makes us fall back on these systems that we know are not just. Um, so I think it's really hard. Um, but I think that's where, as Khadija was sort of um, getting to, it is going to take a transformation of society. Because I think, as she was saying, the idea of prisons are sort of founded on a faulty concept, which is just like punishing people or um taking them you know taking them out of their communities rather than something um i don't know rehabilitation or or like 
you know, if you kill people and you don't value human life, maybe we need to figure out why that is and we need, you need to learn, you know, what humanity is and how to value other people and things like that rather than just, like, you're bad, you don't get to be in society kind of mindset. Um, I mean, there's two things, right? So the question is, do we believe people should be held accountable under the law? And then what should happen to people when we find them in violation of the law, right? And so I think um, what a lot of people of color are saying is everyone should be held equally accountable under the law. Everybody should be. If someone does something wrong, they should be found wrong, right? Like that, that, that is the point of a court is that I won't have to kill George Zimmerman. I won't have to kill Michael Dunn myself because there is a system. There's a community accountability system. Now, then the second piece is then what do we do? Right. What do we do when we find that that person has violated the law? And I think you can attack them as two different pieces. Um, I think you can disaggregate them. You can say we can find you guilty of this, but we want to think about new ways to deal with people who break codes of community. Yeah, that's very that's very well put. Um, and thank you for um, for dealing with this aspect of it, because I think it's it's one of the harder um you know, when we when we talk about um, the injustice in this situation, it's a different injustice than the one that we usually talk about. Of And, you know, people call this a Trayvon Martin case. It's a George Zimmerman case. Why is Trayvon Martin on, on trial even in, you know, in his own death? One, one aspect that I was sort of trying to get at is, um, and I definitely don't have an answer, that's why I was asking the question, is I was inspired to think of it like breaking a law in the same way of sort of um, of resistance that you mentioned earlier that what have people done when they weren't when they were you know when the laws were stacked against them they broke the law well in this case what do we do when like how can we intervene I mean decarcerate has a big picture vision that involves that second point that you talked about dealing with um, what do we? How do we hold people accountable in a way? Since you know we've learned, and I use we you know broadly, um, we've learned that mass incarceration is is a, a terrible way to hold people accountable, and that and unfortunately the people who had to to suffer for us to learn that are people of color and you know low income people predominantly. Um, what do we do? How can we be people who um, who intervene by breaking the law in the in the sense that you uh, you you described it earlier? You know, so if we're being told we can't read and write, how do how are we the people who learn to read and write anyway? How do we start to practice that kind of different relationship um, in our own communities before the big picture changes? Because the big picture is is slow. And if we have to, you know, and and requires us to sometimes talk this language that supports things that we don't believe, you know, for a different purpose. How do we start to to sort of practice that personal intervention or that community on a community scale? Um, I don't know. It's an open question. <laughs> it's but something that I think I struggle with. Did you? Well, we're actually thinking, uh, the, I don't know, but if somebody wants to answer this question, we're just trying to make a, a musical break now, but uh, maybe somebody <laughs> wants to answer to that question before I, we go on to a break. 
I just wanted to say that one of the issues that if you look at kind of the history of segregation in the United States, people were concerned about de jure segregation and de facto segregation. And that means what is legal versus what is the way that we kind of every day in our lives create segregation. And I think um, I think that the honestly right now because technically de jure segregation has been resolved de facto segregation is the thing that we really actually have to take up and what that means is creating ways that we break the boundaries we violate the bound the boundaries and the societal codes that keep us separate every day those are a lot harder to violate into I mean into challenge but there are ways to do it there are ways to have children get white people escorting them helping them volunteering to help kids move through the city freely there are ways that we can kind of mess with these these boundaries in which cops know well, I can target this group and not bother this other group um, and when you start disturbing these boundaries that we allow ourselves every day to participate in when we say actually you know what my my life is linked to this person's life and I know that because because he's brown and you think it isn't, but actually I care that this kid is going to a school that's just a warehouse. I actually care, and it's not because my kid goes here or because I live in this area or that I don't have money. It's because this is a person that I'm binding my life to. I think that is actually where we're at. I don't even know if we have to break laws as much as we have to break routines that we have gotten so used to. I think that's a really good point. Um, also, I just... Um while you were talking, I thought of a class. I'm a student. I took a class last semester um, in black and indigenous feminism, feminisms. And um, just one small example um, was um, a Native American reservation. Um, I forget what state it was in, but they developed their own system of community justice because they have, you know, um, what's it called? Um, domain over their own reservation to persecute crimes that are committed there. Um, so when people would commit sexual assault, um, they, the, the perpetrator themselves had the choice to go to the, you know, state justice system and be, um, you know, tried and put in prison and go through that system, or to do the community justice system, which was developed by you know, their own um, nation, and they had committees, and, you know, they would come up with um, whatever you had to do to make up for what you did and to become accountable to your community and so forth. And it was found that, like, something like a, a large percentage of the people that chose to go through state justice when they got back to the community they were repeat offenders and they committed sexual assault again. And I think like a very, very, very small percentage or possibly none of the people who did the community justice became repeat offenders. So um, I think that just speaks to the power within local communities and, um, and people being held accountable within their community rather than being removed, you know, to have to face your people every day and... Um, and there were a lot of other components in the community justice, but I think that's just an important factor in like the way we think about serving justice and being accountable. Um, who are you accountable to? What does accountable even mean? Um, so that's just like another take on that. I, I wanna I wanna hold in that. Um, uh, we wanna come back with this conversation, but we're just gonna make a little break right now. Um, just want to remind, uh, remind people, others listening, this is WPEB 88.1.
FM and you're listening to Carcery APA Radio and we'll come back in a second. Human beings in a mind What's a mind to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to a Zimmerman was so vicious, he made sure the second shot hit him, no survivor, no witness. Trayvon never gave his cousins a Skittles, Mr. All-Star Game, didn't see another dribble. And George Zimmerman wasn't even arrested, the message is only white life is protected in America. So we're back here in WPEB 88.1 FM. Uh, you are listening um, your community radio in West Philadelphia, and this is the Carcerate PA Radio. And we... 
I would like to come back actually with this um, now that it started. You were talking a little bit in, in, in the in the last uh, block a little bit about the organizing efforts, and we're kind of like starting to talk about how we actually can you know start organizing our own communities to start changing this, you know, like the routine that Khadija was talking about it. So I know that you both were are planning on organizing two events. So I don't know you want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so my event is organized by PERP, which is People Utilizing Real Power. Um, and it's going to be a demonstration in Malcolm X Park in West Philly at 4 p.m. this Wednesday, the 26th. And um, it's partially to commemorate the life of Trayvon Martin, but especially to remember um, all the other victims of racial violence, state violence, vigilante violence, um, hate crimes, um, and so forth that have happened just in the short two-year period since Trayvon died, and to talk about um, ways we can move forward and to harness all that emotional pain from all these things going on in our society and to really think about how we can start to change things. Um, and the event I'm holding is called The Vigil for Trayvon Martin and All Victims of Racial Violence. Um, someone mentioned earlier Darren Manning, who's a 16-year-old um, who was attacked recently by police officers who squeezed his testicles so hard that um, they're concerned he might not be able to have children. They crushed them. He had emergency surgery. Um, and that's an ongoing issue, right? And the police officers still serving. Um, there hasn't been any... Uh, anything any punishment connected to that attack and that's, right and that's right here in Philadelphia yeah so um part of the reason then I I decided to do one it's from 4 30 to 7 but for up to 7 30 but for the first um hour and a half it's mostly going to be signs for people who are walking by um what I realized we held a vigil um after the the jury decision came out in July um at the same space for about 48 hours and people just walked up and said thank you I think people who are walking to school or going to work and and just it's a really busy intersection we wanted to hold a space um near these these supposed spaces of of justice across the street from city hall to or uh, three blocks from the Criminal Justice Center and remind people that there are travesties of justice that we're mourning and that we're grieving and create a space in public for that to happen. So from 4.30 to about 6, we're going to have um, chalking on the sidewalk and um, markers and signs available, candles if people want to light them and have a space in a moment. Um, in, in the summertime, people would stop. Some people would weep. Um, they might not even talk to us, but they, they appreciated having that space. At 6 o'clock, we're going to have um, a bunch of speakers. So we're going to have some people performing poetry. Um, we're going to have uh, some music, some drumming. Um, and then at 7, we're going to have 19 minutes of silence because that's the time um, Trayvon was murdered. And so we're going to stand and remember um, that he was lost at that moment, that, that that was the moment that George Zimmerman decided to take his life. Uh, and we'll walk to the love statue and leave our candles there because this is at, at the very end of the day about love um, and about remembering that you know we are humans and we're in a community together and that um, if we practice love towards one another, we won't have to keep mourning the deaths of black children. Um, I also just forgot to mention that at our event in Malcolm X Park, um, one of the speakers is going to be Pam Africa, who's from the MOVE organization and who's 
um, one of the leaders in the campaign to free Mumia Abu Jamal. So she's going to be there. Um, we're going to have a lot of other people, um, poets and community activists as well. Yeah, and and the good thing is that our events are spaced so that you could, you know, go to the one in West Philly if you wanted and come down to Center City afterwards mm-hmm. um, because ours doesn't really start up until 6 and yours kind of ends around 6. Right. So there's a way that you can do both or you can stop by, you know, the, the one in Center City if you're on your way home and come out to West and light a candle or sign something. Um, I'm hoping and imagining that if we get enough love notes to Trayvon and his family that we'll mail them down to the Trayvon Martin Foundation. So if you want to kind of stop and write a note um, and then head over to West Philly. That's told, you know, we're doing this in community. Um, I told another person who's planning a vigil later on in the week, I was like, this can be Trayvon Martin week. This can be, if there are vigils all over the freaking, you know, city, that, you know, that is something that is, that is that we are holding this space and saying the city needs to be reminded that someone was lost. Yeah, at first, um, I was a little bit worried about all, you know, there's three or four different Trayvon events um, in the week and you know, mine and Khadija's both both on the same evening, and I was like, oh no, what if we're going to, like, split people up, and they're not going to be, you know, attended enough, but then I realized, like, the more the better, like, this, the fact that there's so many being organized shows that people still care, people are still aware, and it really speaks to the need for broader organizing and, and just reaching as many people as possible. Yeah. I think that what 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 Khadija once again is, is mentioning, you know, I think there's like something that's really important in it, and I think that we all really need in our communities, you know, to remember that we're humans, because uh, sometimes it's really easy once again, you know, when you're so immersed in the context of politics and how people treat you, you know, like government's power, and how we live, uh, you know, accepting that oppression. Also, you know, there is really important. Um, that if we don't have love for ourselves, if we don't have love for our own communities, it's like, you know, it's probably not worth it even to fight for ourselves, you know. But once when you return that love for yourself and for your community and the people that surround you and for those ones that have been lost, you know, because power, you know, I think that's something that it's... Uh, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's something that's really important to do, you know. Um, I think that's something really, really valuable. And, and I think I really, that's one of the things I really appreciate. And that's the kind of organizing, definitely, you know, that can bring people back, you know, to believe like, yeah, there is something that we can do, you know. We can recover ourselves from from this pain, from this oppression, from this even, you know, um, you know, people for, uh, forgetting, you know, also these events, you know, I mean, it's just shocking to walk around Philadelphia and see how many murals are of people that's being lost because violence, you know, because police brutality, you know, it's shocking to see how many, you know, little altars are in the streets, you know, in corners of people, really young people, you know, that's being lost and it's, it's really shocking for me to see also how kids that are age years old, you know, see this as a normal thing, you know. But yeah, exactly. What if this was a white person? That will be totally different, you know. And that's something that I think that is really important to to be, uh, to build in our communities, you know. That no, you are important. Like we love you and we love ourselves, and we don't really care what you know the laws are saying over us. You know, we know that we have the power, you know. To I think it's, that's that's just something really really valuable and I really really appreciate that kind of organizing too that reminds me of um, something Che Guevara said it's not an exact quote but it was something along the lines of um, 
what drives a revolutionary is love and, you know, love for the people. And I think that's really what it's all about. Like, why would I be trying to change society if I didn't love the people that were in it? And that these kids are reminded every day that they're not loved, right? In, like, really profound ways. They get stored in these warehouse schools where there aren't enough chairs, where the water's not clean, Mm -hmm. where there's no nurse. um, Mm -hmm. So they're not cared for like their people. Um, Police officers feel, I mean, you know, a year or two ago, a police officer was feeling up little girls as they went into school at the door because they're security. And there was a Mm -hmm. lawsuit. But it's like, this is what they're dealing with every day. And then they die. And you see on news, you see a flash of of yellow tape and sirens and that's it for for two or three kids who got killed that night and so you get told over and over and over again that you are not important that you can you could die any day and we don't care Mm -hmm. and so I think um for us taking up that space to me is it's a show of love for those kids who are going to school who are coming home who who every day are reminded that they are not valuable yeah and I think that's really what these um events for Trayvon are trying to say it's like we're not going to stand for this anymore you do matter you are a human being you are loved like society might be telling you the opposite every day of your life but we're done with that like we're changing that that's not going to continue and there's a, a point at which no justice was done in the sense of like the criminal legal system didn't take any action about mm-hmm. this and so it's really up to us to see that some sort of um, positive thing comes out of this tragedy, mm-hmm. and that's the that's sort of the point where we're at with the Trayvon Martin case is mm-hmm. that it we have to do the you know as as a community as a whole country we have to do the collective re- rehabilitation that the state won't participate in the state's not not doing for us and i'm glad you brought up that point because that is exactly why trayvon martin a lot of people have been lost this year renisha watkins renisha has been Mm -hmm. um lost who another teenager who was killed um when she knocked on somebody's door Mm -hmm. jonathan farrell was killed by police after he got into a car accident i mean so we have all these children but the interesting thing about trayvon is that they didn't even prosecute him they didn't even charge george zimmerman they let him go to work the next day right like they took his statement they ran drug tests on trayvon they didn't even look around the neighborhood to see if he belonged to someone. His father thought he was missing, and he died 70 feet from his house. So, so you know, Trayvon is, is an example like, of not caring about these children um, because it took an entire country coming together and saying, you know, you have to hold this. You have to at least arrest him. You have to charge this person with someone. He killed an unarmed child. Uh, and, and the system being so close to not even prosecuting him not even George Zimmerman almost went completely free um, after he killed this kid so I, I want to give the the two of you the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, the other organizing th- efforts that you're doing in the city and on um, the different work that um, perp does and um, that you're also doing Khadija so I don't know if you guys want to talk about that a little bit sure um so people, I'm sorry, people utilizing real power, um, we try to tackle a lot of issues um, that we see in society, but especially keep it local to Philadelphia. We're actually based in North Philadelphia, but we're trying to expand to other neighborhoods like um, West Philly, where we're having our um, event this week. Um, but we really try to tie together a lot of different struggles that we see in society, so one of the major things we try to deal with is gentrification, especially of 
North Philadelphia. Some of our members are Temple students, and we just see this really, really um, forceful and rapid gentrification of the neighborhoods around Temple University, and that's something we're trying to fight back against. Um, we've had rallies against police brutality, um, also in the North Philly area. Um, we, But we also do other... Um, sort of things that aren't just rallies and demonstrations. We work with um, a community center, um, also in North Philly, where we're going to start over the summer teaching um, classes to the neighborhood kids in things like um, what we call real American history to learn the things that they don't teach in the classroom, especially about um, struggle and activism and you know what really went on during the civil rights movement, why did we learn about civil rights and not black power, um, things like that. Um, we also work with um, a soup kitchen program at the Church of the Advocate called Supper Club, where we're trying to, they have, um, the church has a regular lunchtime soup kitchen, but we're trying to um, also have a dinnertime soup kitchen. So they've had it like once a month for a while, but we're trying to work with them to um, get that to be more often and to reach more people. Um, so we really um, deal with a lot of issues. Something else that we're um, getting behind now is the movement for justice for Dr. Anthony Montero, who is um, a really brilliant professor of African-American studies at Temple University who's been there about 11 years. Um, and he just got fired, you know, given no reason. He's, he's my favorite professor in the department. Um, and it's really... We see it as an attack on um, black men because there's actually him, black men in academia, him and one other professor, um, I believe Maxwell Stanford, also got fired. Um, and I think a year or two before, other professors were let go or they would retire and not be replaced. So that's an issue we're working on now. So really a lot of different things that are um, plaguing our communities as people of color, as poor people, as students, um, as young people, and um, as queer people, and, you know, everything that relates to that. How can people find out more about PERP? Um, so we have a Facebook page. It's um, PERP, or People Utilizing Real Power. We're also on Twitter. Um, it's at PERP Collective. And if you want to um, get in touch with us. Um, our email address is um, perpcollective at gmail.com. Uh, and what I've been involved with, so I, I've been trying to get this off the ground. Um, Ashley actually knows about this, uh, partly because I went to an event earlier this year, and I was hoping that when I showed up to this event that it was going to be about bringing a bunch of people together around the school crisis that was happening. And I realized that it was just yet another small little group trying to start something um, that something relatively small um, and relatively grassroots in a way that I, I felt like in Philadelphia it, it – being here, um, I was here as a graduate student, and now I'm a professor, but it, it was always hard for me to plug into the activist community. It was hard for me to figure out why groups seem to be starting something that should have been around for a long time. And so one of the projects that I'm working on right now is um, a mapping project. That, uh, we are calling it PAVE right now. Of course, I can't even remember. Um, someone brilliant came up with what the acronym should stand <laughs> for. I think it's Philadelphia Activist and... Um, 
and volunteers and there's an e yeah so um we were really excited about it but but as you can see we're still pulling together so we're going to meet on march 8th um there's a facebook page and uh, you can also look me up on facebook uh, i'm khadijah costly white uh on facebook and the group is called um the group on facebook is called mapping progressive philly and so the goal there is to help people who are students there's tons of students i mean philly has a very kind of um uh can't think of it, a transitive population in terms of how many students come in and how many students leave and so i'm trying to create a space that helps activists who are in the community kind of say oh look there's 20 other groups that are working on the very same issue we should organize something together um and be able to kind of look online and uh and also another way for students to come in and say, well, I want to do something and I want to be plugged into a group that is community responsible, um, that is community community accountable. I don't want to just, you know, do volunteer projects at Penn. What can I do? And you can kind of go on. So the, the idea is to really centralize um, all of the amazing activism and volunteering volunteer work that's happening in Philadelphia and really get power players to understand who they are and, and, and really start breaking some of these boundaries between certain communities in Philadelphia. So the best way to get in touch with you is uh, through the Facebook or email? Through the Facebook. Um, my email is uh, khadijah.white at rutgers.edu. So khadijah is K-H-A-D-I-J-A-H dot white, like the color, at rutgers, R-U-T-G-E-R-S dot E-D-U. So you can email me. You can uh, look me up on Facebook. Uh, and I should probably actually put it on my website as well. Um, but hopefully we're going to be getting some really brilliant activists to really start going through the city and, and bringing people together. I'm really excited about that possibility. No, that sounds like a really, um, you know, interesting and powerful you know, tool for people, you know, because it's true. A lot of people can like comes here and they get lost. And then uh, there are so many really great organizations that are working here. And I think it's really important to try to just bring those, you know, a little bit more to the attention to the people and students, you know. So I think it's great also what you're saying, you know, not just going to UPenn programs and, you know, there there no, you know, totally invested in the in the in the neighborhoods in the opposite are you know causing such a great gentrification and pushing so many people away from the neighborhood so i think that's like really really great um i don't know do anybody have any last comments i have an announcement um i guess a celebration um russell maroon schultz who's been uh who's been you know, his, his daughter, Teresa Schultz, has been like an integral part of decarcerate almost from the beginning. Um, Russell's uh, maroon uh, just got out of solitary confinement after like, well, 22 consecutive years, but even more than that. Um, yeah, like almost 30 years um, being locked down for basically because he was a... Uh, powerful mentor and leader and also because the state was was super afraid of him you know i think it's the fruits of some great organizing a uh, bunch of folks um from both new york and philly and elsewhere have like kind of like over the last couple of years gotten it together and and started a campaign to have him released so um i think that's that's huge cause cause for celebration and um I, I saw Russell and Sharon, his, his two of his uh, kids, went up to to for a visit just I think yesterday or the day before, and uh, there's some great pictures on Facebook. It's, it's great to see them. 
you know, like right there touching each other and, and like for the first time in, in decades. So. Well, um, thanks for everybody for coming today. Uh, um, the show is going to be available. If people want to listen, uh, you can go to the carcerapa.info slash radio uh, where we archive our, our shows. And we are also going to be posting information on Facebook and Twitter so people can find more information of these two important events that are happening this coming Wednesday. Um, and we're going to be putting also the links to both of uh, the contacts for people to be able to get in touch with uh, you both. Um. Thanks. You've been listening to 88.1 WPEB. Um, please enjoy this incredibly rare live John Coltrane recording. <laughs> Thank you.